<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Season 2, Episode 4 of Just Science was recorded during the Cradle to Cane Vulnerable Victims Conference in Charleston, South Carolina. Part 1 of this two-part episode had Mike Weber, an investigator with the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office in the Crimes Against Children Unit, set up a case involving Munchausen Syndrome by proxy. Stay tuned as we investigate this dramatic roller coaster of a case filled with deceit and cliffhangers that seem more like fiction than reality. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We left off with the victim being tested in the hospital and Hope's story starting to unravel. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. It's extraordinary to me that in this day and age, that such a primitive sounding test would be the basis for any diagnosis like cystic fibrosis. I mean, well, like I said, it's, it's a presumptive test. She had actually, it was noted in the hospital records that she had presented something where she had had genetic testing done through the um, Cystic Fibrosis Society, but I checked with them. The Cystic Fibrosis Society had no records of that, and we could not find that document, but at some point she had presented a document to doctors saying that the genetic testing had been done. So why would they do it again? Right. And she could easily have falsified or... Yeah. She had, she obviously had to falsify that document because her child didn't have cystic fibrosis. Sure. And a genetic test would approve that. Yeah, I mean, nobody, there's very little, you know, counterfeit medical records. There's not a whole lot of work done to prevent that kind of thing. I would, you know, how would anyone have known whether she just told it verbally or gave them some letter or something like that? Who would know, right? And again, they're extremely manipulative. They present very well. It's something that the medical profession does not expect a mother to ever do. Not only the medical profession, the legal profession, the law enforcement profession, the CPS. I mean, this is not something we expect a parent to do. So it's, it's very kind of hard for people to wrap their mind around it when it happens. Yeah, and the, the girl was five years old by the time all of this really came to light. So it was a long time that this was going on. Yes, a long time, lots of medical procedures. The mother was milking this for as much as she could with respect to attention. So she was involved in the cystic fibrosis and make-a-wish and things like that, right? Correct, yes. And attention, I believe, is the main motivator, but she also received financial benefits from this. The whole family was sent to Make-A-Wish Foundation. Previous employer gave her $18,000 as a donation. There were several other smaller donations. She did a TV interview where she presented herself as having terminal cancer. Her daughter is having terminal cystic fibrosis. And that TV interview and other fundraisers led to over $100,000 being raised. So, I mean, there were monetary benefits for her. I do not believe that was the main motivating factor. But I also believe, after working several of these cases, I believe these offenders get a psychological jolt out of fooling people who they perceive as smarter than themselves. I think that's also kind of a, a secondary motivational factor in this thing, outside of attention. When did you start uh, to enter the case in your investigation? I came in after the sweat test were done at Cook's Children's and the second round of sweat test, and they showed that the child did not have cystic fibrosis. 
So I came in at that point and started my investigation. How do you even begin such an investigation? What a difficult one to even contemplate. What did you do to start? The first thing to do for law enforcement, and I did not do this in Hope's case because it was 2009, because I wasn't really up to date on social media, but from a law enforcement perspective, the very first thing you want to do when you get this reported is you want to find your potential offender on social media, and you want to lock down every social media account she has. As law enforcement, we can preserve those accounts. We don't need probable cause to preserve them. We can preserve them for a certain time period. You want to preserve every single one of those accounts so you don't lose it, because you're going to build probable cause to get to those accounts. Like I said, Hope's case was a little bit different because I didn't have social media, but that's the first thing in law enforcement-wise you want to do. You also need to start collecting medical records. It's very important you work in a multidisciplinary fashion in these investigations because someone's going to need to talk to the mother and find out where this child has been seen for medical treatment. I prefer that to be the CPS investigator assigned to the case. In Texas, we don't have a medical child abuse finding or a Munchausen by proxy finding for CPS. They operate sexual abuse, physical abuse, medical neglect. So it's either going to be physical abuse or medical neglect they're going to talk to this mother about in their first interview. And I always encourage CPS, that first interview should be extremely non-confrontational. You should act like, you know, I don't know what's going on. Can you just tell me what's going on with your kid? I just need to know. You know, they said you're medically neglecting your child because this mother will go to great deals to show you she's taking her child to all these doctors. How can she be guilty of medical neglect? So that's what was done with Hope. And she was able to give a list of doctors and uh, hospitals that the victim had been seen at, not only the victim. I mean, CPS, when they do this, I always tell them, it's not just a medical history for the victim. It's a medical and social history for the offender and any children that she has. And it's going to be a three-hour process. These investigations are extremely tedious, extremely long, and labor-intensive. And all for an outcome, you know, it's not going to be a sexy 60-year sentence. You know, it may be a 10-year probation from a legal perspective. But at the same time, if we don't do it, there's every possibility that child goes back to that mother every possibility. So those are the first steps in the investigative process that I do. I, I want to get all those medical records and, and I want to lock down social media. I also want to find out are there any people, collaterals that I can talk to that are not, you know, completely on mom's side? Is there anyone neutral that I can talk to in this thing? And with this case, it was Hope's mom. I immediately contacted her because obviously she was the reporting of this. So I'm going to talk to her and she was able to give some great history about what had happened and even led to some evidence recovery later on in the case. How did you connect the four infections to the child? Were those infections that were detected by medical professionals or something you came across in your investigation? Hope's mother had told me that she had been to Hope's graduation at Sol Ross for her bachelor's degree. Hope had also told her mom that she got a master's from Texas Christian University and a PhD from Texas Christian University. Hope's mother now was suspicious of this because she had never seen the degrees. She, Hope had told her, oh, you, know, you saw me walk to the other stage. You just don't worry about it for the PhD and the master's. So she had no proof that Hope was doing this. Hope had PhD on her lab coat. Her name was PhD on her emails, on her business cards. She was very proud of PhD. She had a TCU sticker on the back of her car. But Hope's mother told me, I don't even know if she has a PhD. As an investigator, that becomes important to me because I want to know if she's lying about other more fantastic things, right? I mean, 
Is she just a pathological liar? So I contacted her work. I had already received Cook's medical records, and I'd read through them. And in the medical records, it was noted where the child had these four pathogens in her system. And again, I may be misusing pathogens. Y'all, please forgive me. I am not a medical professional. As somebody who worked in chemical and biological defense, I think those four in particular can be called pathogens in my view, but that's just me. I'd already seen those in the Cook's medical records, that she had had these infections at some point in time. Interestingly enough, the salmonella infection was from a biopsy of her lung. I'm not a doctor, but the doctors told me that that's the first time that they had ever seen that in their careers, that salmonella being found in that location. And this brings up a very good point as far as investigating these cases and how law enforcement should talk to doctors. As law enforcement, we're very black and white. You know, don't go in there and say, well, well could this ever happen? Because to a doctor, a doctor is going to not rule out anything ever happening, right? A better question is, in your however many years of practice, have you ever seen this occur? I'll give you a for instance. Say you have a child that has all these terrible gastric issues, and all of a sudden you separate the child from the offender, and the child eats on his own, gets better with no medical intervention. The question to the doctor would then be, in your years of practice, have you ever seen a child recover like this who had these ailments that wasn't a victim of medical child abuse or Munchausen by proxy? That's the way you want to ask a question to a doctor because that is directed strictly on his knowledge base on what he's seen during his practice, and he can answer that very clearly. But after finding those in the medical records, I contacted her boss because I wanted to find out if she had a PhD. And I contacted her company. I was, I was just trying to get subpoena information to get her employment records. I called them on the phone, told them that who I was calling about, what I needed. And she said, hold on. And she came back and she said, can the president of the company call you back in 15 minutes? I said, sure. And, you know, my eyebrows went up at that point. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely, there's something going on there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. And so the president called me back. In 15 minutes, she was extremely cooperative, very nice, and he explained to me what had happened with Hope's employment at the company. Hope had become, had come under suspicion after she had ordered two pathogens that the company didn't use and ordered them from a supplier they didn't. And he had also become suspicious of her degree from his conversations with her about her work. He did have a, a PhD in, in biology. So as they started that investigation, find out twofold if she ordered these pathogens, you know, what she did with them, and does she have a PhD? During the investigation, the HR director who was handling it left her water bottle in her cubicle. She came back, her water bottle was gone. She looks around, she can't find it, she leaves. She comes back again, her water bottle's back. So she's like, no, I must have just overlooked it. She drinks from her water bottle and becomes violently ill. She goes home, she suspects someone's poisoned her water bottle. She suspects Hope Jabara poisoned her water bottle specifically. They take the water bottle, they're able to, to DNA type the pathogens they have in their lab. Right? So they, right. when they do that in the lab, they test the bottle. Sure enough, it has Pseudomonas arginosa on it. They DNA type it, and it comes back to the pathogens from their lab. So that was an interesting side note to me because Pseudomonas arginosa was one of the pathogens found inside of, of her daughter. I asked him, did you report this to the police? And he's like, well, we couldn't prove it. I'm kind of like, well, that's kind of our job, but uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? Maybe if it had been the salmonella, I don't know. Salmonella has been used in a terrorist attack before. There was actually a, a, a case back in the 80s where salmonella was used as a salad bar in the hopes of disabling a lot of people as a way of influencing an election, believe it or not. But, yeah, I mean, I'm shocked that they wouldn't, they wouldn't report pseudomonas. That's just not out there that much. I mean... Anyway, that's a whole other topic. And after talking to him, 
he also told me that they had done a, a complete investigation. They had checked with TCU. He had hired a private investigative agency actually to do it. Really? And, uh, he gave me their number. I, uh, he gave me their number, and they forwarded me the records. She did not have a PhD or a master's from TCU. She had completely fabricated it. Of course. And I was able to confirm that with the TCU registrar's office. He also told me the pathogens she had access to at the lab. She had access to nine pathogens. Four of them had ended up in her daughter. There were other pathogens in her daughter also. And we know that because she had ordered two pathogens they didn't use, she had access to order any pathogens, basically a lot of pathogens that she wanted. But we knew these four the lab had and had been in her daughter. The interesting thing was one of them was Pseudomonas arginosa, which doctors later told me is one of the most common causes, for lack of a better word, of pneumonia in cystic fibrosis patients. Again, my eyebrows went up at that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, she must have done some research. I mean, she wasn't a PhD, but she spent some time trying to figure this out. I mean, the level of manipulation and forethought here is extraordinary. And again, that shows she knows what she's doing. And again, when we get to the interview portion where she lies, she, she knows what she's doing and she knows it's wrong. I mean, the planning shows intent. So after the second sweat test went normal, right, and went bad from Hopi Barra's point of view, and she has this break, is she at that point ready to admit to law enforcement or to anybody? This was the second investigation that I conducted. This is the first one we ever filed criminal charges on. Because of that, there was a lot of things we didn't do right. And one of those things was CPS should never, ever place a child with a non-believing parent or a non-believing family member because these offenders are so manipulative. They're going to get access to that child. And it's the one form of abuse where it benefits them if they continue the abuse when the child's not in their care. So, again, being the second one, CPS did allow dad to have custody. Again, he did not believe initially that this occurred. They gave him custody of the children and made mom sign a safety plan to be out of the home. But that was also beneficial later on in the interview process because there were no attorneys involved with mom. She didn't go have to go hire a civil attorney to fight for custody at this point. So I had time to accumulate records and do my complete investigation before I interviewed her, part of which was going to Children's Medical Center of Dallas and getting those records on the first sweat test and seeing what they showed, which was very interesting. You know, she had four sweat tests at Children's Medical Center Dallas. The first test was borderline, was right on the border for, for cystic fibrosis. The second sweat test had a finding of interfering substance. The third and fourth were positive. It's the second one that raised my eyebrows as an investigator again, right? Interfering substance, what does this mean? How common is this? With the hospital's help, I was able to track down the person in the hospital who actually processed that test. Thankfully, she had been doing it for over 20 years. And again, she couldn't remember the test being associated with the victim, but we had the hospital records that did that. She was able to tell me that she remembered one test in her entire career that she had labeled as interfering substance. She remembered it because it was so rare. She remembered that the machine that counts assault in the sweat just kept running and running and running. The, the salt content was so high. Right. And she remembered having a 15-minute conversation with her boss about how to label the test that was that rare. And after she told me that, we then got with the IT department at Children's Medical Center Dallas. They were able to go back and check all the sweat tests from 1993 forward. And they had one sweat test labeled as interfering substance in that time period. And that was the victim sweat test. 
So almost certainly, Hopi Vera had not quite learned how to fake the test well enough. She put too much salt in. Right. Well, to me, it kind of reminded me of Goldilocks, right? I mean, this yeah. one's too cold, this one's too hot, this one's just, I, I think she didn't put enough in the first time, she put too much in the second time, third and the fourth time she figured it out. That's the theory. She did eventually, in a prison interview, admit to altering all four tests, but she never really says how and claims she doesn't have memory of it. Yeah. So the daughter was subject to a fair number of things here. I mean, there were feeding tubes. Were there, there even surgeries? Were there surgeries as a result of all this? Well, yeah, there's a, surgery to, there's a surgery to place the gastric feeding tube. There's a minor surgery to place the uh, central line. She was poked and prodded with numerous biopsies, endoscopies, numerous tests that were done. She had sleep studies done for apnea, all sorts of tests that were done with, you know, results of any test was always negative. Yeah. So let's go back to the original timeline. I was trying, I'm sorry, I, I got us, because I was just curious about that aspect. So the father had custody at this point. She had signed this thing saying she wasn't going to be going back to the house, but somehow she got back in there and continued to do the abuse. We don't think she continued to do the abuse. We can't put her in the house with the kids. Their story was she was going back to the house during the day and then she was going to stay at homeless shelter at night. And we checked the homeless shelter records. She was there at night. During the day, the kids were at school. But she still had access to everything in the home that the kids were going to eat, the kids were going to drink. I mean, she could have done anything to any of those items. Um, because she had gotten back in the home, we got a search warrant for the home, and the search warrant's purpose was to find any of the pathogens that she may have stolen from work. Now, again, this is the second investigation, and I don't really know what I'm looking I am a cop looking for pathogens. That's probably not a, not a great situation to be in. I got as much information from her work as I could, took the FDA with me, and we went out there and searched the house. We didn't find them in any, any pellet form, which I've been told they would be in. Interestingly enough, we took some children's laxative from the medicine cabinet, and it was tested and found to contain candidious albicans. We never DNA typed it to find out if it was, you know, organic or whether it was from her lab, but we could have done that if this had ever gone to trial, and we would have, but we didn't have to go that far. Yeah, candida is a little bit more common than the others in the environment, but yeah. So you were able to at least do some of that work. What is it that really, in your view, kind of turned the investigation? What, at what point were you convinced not only that this was Munchausen by proxy, but that you could prove it? That we could absolutely prove it was after her interview. But there were numerous steps along the way. I mean, from the initial, and this is not always the case in these, but from the initial involvement, I already knew from the report, no question, she had presented her child with a false diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. There's no question about that. I mean, you can't have it and not have it. And one of the ways you diagnose this is you separate the child from the mother or the offender and watch the progress of the child. And a way from the offender, this child was better. Her feeding tube was, she was eating by mouth. Her feeding tube was taken out. Her uh, port was removed all within the first three weeks, I believe, three to four weeks. And she was weaned off all medication. And she was healthy and thriving. I mean, I knew at that point that this was a crime. When did I know I could prove it was, would be after her interview was when I knew absolutely. She would have been arrested anyway at that point because I already had enough evidence for probable cause, absolutely. But, you know, being at the DA's office, I've come to understand the difference between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a lot. The interview meant a lot in this case. What did you end up 
actually charging her with because you know yeah she had a feeding tube placed in Dallas so that was Dallas's jurisdiction we didn't have a charge for that at the time the law didn't allow us to charge if the offense was committed in another jurisdiction hope had presented her child as having anemia interestingly enough she had presented her child as having anemia before there's any medical history of anemia before there's any documented event of anemia in medical records also, interestingly enough, the child got a PICC line inserted eight days before her first documented medical anemia episode. The way we ended up charging her is for one of those anemic episodes because Hope took the child to Cook's Children's. She was rushing the doctor. I'm in a hurry. Just give this child an IV iron treatment so we can get out of here. She's had it before in Dallas. She's not allergic. Just, you know, she wanted the doctor to disregard protocol. The doctor would not disregard protocol. And it's a good thing because as soon as she started the IV iron treatment, the victim went into anaphylactic shock. And absent medical attention, the victim would have died. So we had substantial risk of death for serious bodily injury in Texas. And when I talked to the hematologists who treated the anemia, after we knew everything, after everything, we know she doesn't have cystic fibrosis, we know she's an active thriving child, I asked them very simply, in a well child, what could cause what you saw? And the only answer was the child would have had to have been bled. They knew she wasn't bleeding internally because they checked all of that. And because of her red blood cell pattern, which I don't understand, I'm sure probably a lot of people do on, on this podcast, but also because of that, it indicated blood loss. It was their opinion the child had, had to be bled. So what we charged her with was bleeding her child in order to cause anemia, which caused an IV iron tube, which caused anaphylactic shock, which caused serious bodily injury to her child. As you can see, that's going to be a tough road at trial. Is this a case you eventually had to take to trial? We did not, I believe, because of her interview and what was gained during the inter her interview. Um, she didn't confess, but she made numerous admissions. So you interviewed her before or after arrest? I interviewed her before arrest. I had already reviewed all the medical records. I knew about the anemia. I knew about the cystic fibrosis test, all of them. I talked to numerous people. I talked to her mother. I talked to all of her doctors. I got in all of the background investigations. And it really worked out perfectly because that's how you want to be able to go into these interviews, being extremely prepared with these offenders. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way, especially if they already have an attorney involved. You may not get the opportunity to interview. With Hope, we didn't have that. There was no attorney involved. So I developed a plan for the interview, and the plan was I was going to approach Hope and afford her the opportunity to lie to me. What I mean by that is it seemed to me that she was very comfortable fooling doctors and people she perceived as very smart. So I was going to present myself to her as a very dumb, unmotivated civil servant who just wanted to do something that he had to do and get it over with. Meanwhile, I had all this information. So I also planned two bluffs. As law enforcement, we are allowed to lie to offenders with the specific purpose of getting to the truth only. My two bluffs with her... Uh, one of them, which was medically wrong, as she corrected me in the interview, but my two bluffs with her were that we still had a blood test at Cook's Children's and that contained the pseudomonas arginosa, and we had sent that blood test to her lab, and they were in the process of DNA typing it to the pseudomonas that she had access to. And the second lie I told her was that we still had the sweat test from Dallas years earlier, the second test you know, the interfering substance. And we're in the process of retesting that to see what the substance was. 
interestingly enough, those were the only two admissions she made. You know, if I would have been better at this at that point, I would have tried to have come up with something for the actual thing we were charging her with, which was the anemia, but I didn't. I don't think I could figure a way to use a bluff there. In the interview, as far as the anemia is concerned, she admitted to accessing the port and removing a syringe of blood every time she accessed the port. So she admitted to having the means to cause the anemia, but she would not admit to doing it. She did give us some really good admissions during the interview. She admitted to putting pathogens into her child's sputum sample. Now, she would not admit to putting them into the child herself. Interestingly enough, the child was only five. She was only old enough to have ever have given one sputum sample, and there was only one sputum sample in the medical records. But she admitted to doing this multiple times. So that, again, is a minimization, right? Something we see with criminals. They minimize their conduct. And she also admitted to falsifying the second sweat test, but only the second sweat test, at Children's Medical Center in Dallas by putting nasal spray under the patch. I asked her why nasal spray. She said salt water. Those were the two big admissions that we got in the interview. When I confronted her directly on anemia, told her that, that I knew that she had removed blood from her daughter, she looked at me and said, I just feel like I'm diving in a deep hole that I can't get out of. Again, she knows what she's done, she knows it's wrong, and she's dodging the consequences. So that was what happened in the interview. Uh, at the end of the interview, I kind of confront her on why she's done this. She's like, well, because my daughter was sick, I was trying to get her help. I'm like, by falsifying her medical conditions? And she said to me, quote, I wanted someone to pay attention, something I'll never get in any other interview ever again. She gave me motive for the crime. And she realized she had given you some good ad admissions during the interview, and you've done an enormous amount of work. Sounds like there was an enormous amount of drama as part of it. But it wasn't over yet, right? The arrest actually turned out to be quite the incident as well. What happened with the arrest? Figuring out how to charge her was a process. I sat down with Delana Minton, my court chief at the time, and I was preparing the arrest warrant for her whenever I received a call from her mom and Hope's mother who told me that Hope had got an apartment in Dallas. She'd been found in her apartment in Dallas on the floor unresponsive and was taken to Dallas County Hospital. So I called the hospital, which unknown to me was a teaching hospital, and I asked to speak with the attending physician, which little known to me, the residents are, are the ones really attending the, you know. So I get the attending physician, I tell him, this is what we got. He's like, no, she's had an MRI. She has a 30% chance of, of living a, a self-sustained life. She has a, a brain injury. Just gives me a terrible diagnosis. And I'm like, well, I know Hope. So I call the hospital legal staff back and say, hey, can I talk to someone on her floor who's involved in her treatment? So they give me the hospital social worker. I'm like, look, here's the deal. I tell her the whole story. Tell her, just give me a call if there's a miracle recovery. And sure enough, two days later, she calls me and tells me that Hope is sitting up in bed talking. Doctors are calling it a miracle recovery. Miracle recoveries were common with Hope. How did that happen? How did she get, how did she make it seem like she was a, become a permanent vegetative coma? Interestingly enough, that social worker also said, I've done some checking. She was given an EEG, not an MRI. She wasn't given an MRI because her, her husband gave a history of her having a cochlear implant, which she doesn't have. So she wasn't given the MRI. She was given an EEG, and the social worker said, I checked, and the doctor said it's, it's basically normal, and they're trying to figure out now what's going on. So again, people, just, they just don't expect this. It's not anything anyone expects any person to do. 
And these people play on that. And the father's still in denial, even at this point. Even later on, he's still in denial, isn't he? Yes. At this point, he's still very much in denial. He did go and see her 22 times when she was in jail. And kind of how she got to jail, she was released from the county hospital to a rehab facility. Uh, she took memory tests there that she failed miserably, but, you know, I talked to the doctor there, gave him the full run. Now he's like, it's very interesting because every time I have a conversation with her about her family, she remembers everything. But she can't remember anything when she takes his test. So she was malingering at that facility. But when she was ready to be released, I told them, let me know when you feel she's ready for medical release because we have a hospital wing that can care for her. And so when they were ready to release her, they called me and we served the arrest warrant as, as she was signed out of the facility. So she actually has gone to prison now. You all were able to charge her, able to get some sort of guilty plea from her. That's correct. She agreed to plead guilty to 10 years in state prison, which, let's be very honest, on these type of cases, it's extremely hard to get those pleas. Even with the admissions I had from her, they weren't a confession to bleeding her daughter, and that's what we had her charged with. Yeah. So they would have been very damaging for her during trial, but they aren't a confession. And it's a very unique way to charge a child abuse case. In Texas, we have something called the law of parties, which if there's an offending party who basically manipulates or tricks someone into committing a crime and they have the culpable mental state of intentionally or knowingly for that crime, we can charge them with that crime. A lot of states don't have that, and that's the mechanism we use to charge hope here. So the 10-year plea was a, a great plea to take. She's going to serve kind of because some of the things she's done since, she'll serve every day. She's now in jail presenting herself as having a hearing problem she doesn't have. And interestingly enough, I was contacted by a speech uh, pathologist for, that volunteers at the jail in 2015, and she asked me, you know, Hope had come to her class to learn sign language and was talking with a speech effect that was off, let's just say, and was using sign language that wasn't sign language. And so she Googled her, saw an article I had written on Hope, and called me and asked me, did she talk normally when you investigated her? I'm like, yeah. It's like, do you have any audio of that? Can I listen to it? So I let her listen to it. She's like, yeah, she's not deaf. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know. And she went back and <laughs> the next time Hope showed up, she confronted Hope about that and kicked her out of the class. She confronted her, Hope dropped the fake accent, closed the gap on her, and told her she'd get her for doing this or something to that effect, made a veiled threat. Again, she knows what she's doing. She knows it's wrong. She just wants to do it. And Deanna Boyd ended up finding this case in 2015. I don't seek a lot of media publicity because I'm kind of torn because I think the message needs to be out there. Yeah. But I also don't want to give these ladies or these offenders any more attention. I mean, they kind of thrive off that. And listening to this story, it's like watching an auto accident. It really is it's very fascinating. And it's compelling. It's very interesting to see this kind of behavior. It's very difficult not to give it attention. It really is. Right. Deanna Boyd did a great job. She did a series in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on, on the cases that we investigated. And she did a wonderful job. But she went down, she interviewed Hope in 2015. And again, Hope was presenting the fake death accent, had her death card. The accent came and went during the interview. Um, Hope, now that there's, no, there's not any more consequences for what she's done, she admitted to falsifying all four sweat tests. She admitted to never having cancer. She admitted to falsely telling everyone that she had twins that she miscarried. She had a urn on her mantle at home that supposedly contained the twins' ashes. She admitted to Deanna Boyd 
at that point in time that it didn't contain the twins' ashes because that never happened. She made many admissions to her that she wouldn't make to me. And why is that? Because there are no consequences for her now. She's serving her time. Interestingly enough, would still not admit to bleeding her daughter. Now, when Deanna Boyd confronted her and said, hey, these doctors all say that's the only way it could happen, she then fell back to the line, well, you know, before I got arrested, I, I had this uh, diabetic coma and, you know, affected my memory. And, you know, some things I don't remember. But, you know, she'd say that in her interview with Deanna as an excuse when she didn't want to answer something because she remembered other things perfectly fine. Another admission she gave in the interview is she admitted watering down the formula that went into the feeding tube to make sure the victim didn't gain weight. Well, I hope she serves at least the 10 years, if not find some other, something else, because I, I pray she is never anywhere near a child ever again. You know, hopefully she's, when she gets out, she's going to be in her mid-40s. So hopefully she can never have children again. I don't know that she's never going to be near a child again. You know, that's another aspect of the case. With medical advances, maybe she still could have children again. But, you know, with 10 years, having the option of 10 years or having to take something to trial that you may not win, 10 years is a really good solution. With Deanna Boyd, she's going to serve every day of that 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just so we know, because I know a lot of people are going to be very upset by this, how are the children doing now? Both children are perfectly fine, perfectly healthy. The youngest victim who sustained the most invasive procedures is a straight-A student, is active and healthy in sports. She's a very, very athletic volleyball player and is doing wonderful. Well, thank God for that. And uh, I'm, sh I'm sure they're going to be carrying around a lot, of, a lot of the trauma, you know, psychological trauma, but thank God that they physically are doing well. And obviously they've recovered reasonably well. It's amazing how tough, how amazing some of these victims are in terms of how they're able to recover. From these. The youngest victim, she's going to have scars. Uh, she has some pretty substantial scars from the feeding tube placement that will be with her for her entire life as, as a reminder of what happened. Now, is the father in the children's lives today? He is. He actually has custody of both children. He has divorced Hope. At some point after the arrest, he, I believe, got it and filed for divorce. The girls, from his report, are doing fine, are doing good in school. The youngest wants to be a doctor. And I didn't have a lot of contact with him after the arrest. So I don't know what led him there, but that's where he seems to be at this point. He has told reporters that he does not give hope any letters from them, and they do not write hope in jail. We had a wonderful conversation. We learned a lot here, and it's been great, as well as getting some of the other resources that are out there for managing Munchausen cases. Are there, are there any particular resources you'd like to highlight for folks? Amazingly, there are very few out there. If anyone has one of these cases come across your desk, you can contact me directly, and I can hook you up with a handful of experts in this. There is no help for victims. There's literally nothing out there for victims of medical child abuse. And I think it's because we view it as something that's unique and, you know, like you said, it's kind of like a car accident. It's fun to look at. But there's, right. right now, there's, there's no services for victims. There's no support groups. There's nothing out there. There's nothing for law enforcement. There's no, when I started working these, I went on the internet and I found a prosecutor in Houston who had prosecuted one of them and gave him a call. And he was able to help me, as was a psychiatrist who'd written multiple books on this. They were kind of able to, to point me in the way and basically do the most important thing, tell me this is abuse. This is not a mental condition. This is abuse. It's intentional. And that's what you need to understand going forward in these cases. 
Uh, APSAC is uh, the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children is working on new guidelines, and they're also doing a research push on this topic uh, due to the uh, recent editorial in the, the New York Times, which called this the new child abuse. You know, no one's filing criminal cases, so I don't know how this can be the new, the new child abuse. But with abusive head trauma, when something gets challenged, you need to respond with research, which is what APSAC is doing. There's websites out there that claim there's medical kidnapping, which is one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. You know, doctors and CPS collaborating to steal children from parents. And that's what they say Munchausen by proxy is. Doctors use it as it's used to do this. Of course, they can say this all publicly and doctors can't respond because of HIPAA, right? They can contact me directly at the Tarrant County DA's office and I can access them to the, to the people that I have. Uh, they can check through ABSAC to get uh, some professionals also. I very much appreciate your work in this area, very, not only on the Hopi Barra case, but on the other ones as well. And and also being willing to get out there and try to help folks. These are very difficult investigations. What you went through on just this one case to get it together in a, in a rigorous way is a lesson, and uh, I can only hope that there will be others who will be able to learn from this podcast and the other information you've put out there. I appreciate that very much. The thing to remember about this is it's going to take time. It's very hard for a detective with 25, 30 cases on his caseload to do that. This form of abuse is not very easily recognized. The decisions you make will directly affect this child. And that's this episode of Just Science, a fascinating look at Munchausen by proxy. Thank you again very much, Mike, and uh, keep on working. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Next week on Just Science, we interview John Collins Jr. about the 1996 Atlanta Olympic bombings. The episode will discuss the nails that were packed into the bomb, other forensic evidence that helped track down the suspect, and the challenges associated with bombing evidence. Please visit the FTCOE website at ForensicsCOE.org for more information about this podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.